Hey, welcome back to Tunes Tunes Podcast. I'm your host, Harold. As always, you can follow us on social media. That's Tunes Tunes Podcast, T-U-N-E-S slash T-O-O-N-S. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your podcasts. Hey, guys, I'm doing something a little different this week. I was super stoked to be able to talk to Craig Bartlett. Shout out to our buddy Jim Lang for hooking up this interview. Uh, hope you guys like it. Hey, Craig, how's it going? Good. And I really appreciate you taking the time, man, first and foremost. Yeah, no problem. It was really exciting to be able to talk to you because, you know, Hey Arnold is such an iconic cartoon to so many of us. The interview with Jim Lang was like my first really big, cool moment for my show to be able to talk to someone that created something that I really was a big fan of. But starting out, like, man, I really would like to hear about cartoons growing up, man. Like, do you remember like a cartoon that you were really into growing up that stuck out to you? Yeah, when I was a kid, um, we had the the Warner Brothers cartoons that were being shown on Saturday morning, collected in a, a like a it was like an hour long collection featuring Bugs Bunny and the Roadrunner, and I knew they were older. You know, somehow I knew they weren't from they weren't being made right then, but it, it for sure it didn't matter. You know, I thought those cartoons were by far my favorites. Um, in terms of being just where I got my sense of humor from and where I got my timing from. You know, I, I was looking at Chuck Jones's uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas uh, last week, and I was going, look at this timing. His his comic timing about how you sell a joke visually, and, and the, the, you know, never mind that it's drawn, it's crazy. You know, they these characters are just drawings that are painted on cells, but, uh, you know, they're, you absolutely know what everybody's thinking all the time. And, and that's Chuck's just one of, of the Warner directors that there were several, and they were all wonderful. And, and I, so I was able to see the classic forties and fifties animation mostly. And then when I became an adult, I looked into it deeper and, and uh, you know, caught up on, on most of what had been made in the thirties and forties and fifties. Uh, but it, it, you know, it remains to me about as pure a kind of cartoon making as, as it gets. And then I would also want to uh, shout out to the Charlie Brown specials that came on in the mid sixties. I was the perfect age in the mid sixties to, uh, to be kind of Charlie Brown age. And that first one was the Charlie Brown Christmas, which I still think is, you know, really revolutionary. It was about, about as cool as anything I'd ever seen and very different from the Warner cartoons and the Disney cartoons because it, it was it was about being funny in a whole new way, mostly kind of the psychological humor of these these kids. These the all the Peanuts kids were hilarious, you know, and they all spoke like adults. And the theme of the Christmas show, as you recall, was that Charlie Brown's depressed. He's got seasonal depression. Relatable. <laughs> Yeah, who, who can't relate to that? But uh, when I think about it, nothing like that had ever been done. When I saw that, I, I knew, man, this isn't anything like the classic cartoons that I'd grown up on. This is a new kind of kind of, uh, you know, it was mid 60s when that came out. All the more amazing because you think maybe even the 70s or something, they would have gotten around to that kind of humor. But, you know, Charles Schultz was a very funny and his stuff was his humor was kind of breakthrough. Yeah, that's, I mean, and it shows the, it stands the test of time because, you know, a lot of households, that's like a staple. Like, it's not that season until we get to watch 
you know, the Great Pumpkin, the 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 Christmas special. The music too, you know, which will bring us back to Jim Lang because um, the music of the Charlie Brown special was very different. You know, the the Warner cartoons were kind of based on a classical orchestra, and they they quoted classical music. It's where I found out all about opera and stuff was from those cartoons. But uh, Charlie Brown, it was a jazz trio, and and that music was, you know, the Vince Guaraldi music from Charlie Brown is almost the best thing about it. When I when I think about the season and putting on, watching the special, I also go and put on the CD as soon as it gets cold and starts to look like winter. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, I start listening to Vince Guaraldi play that's, you know, and that music is, what, 60 years old now. Yeah, but it still holds up, man. Yeah, it, it definitely... It definitely does. And Jim, I mean, that's just a testament to you guys growing up, too. He he talked about being such a big fan of Vince Guaraldi, George Gershwin. All the stuff that he was listening to at that time was, like, very big. And you really nailed it with, like, the Looney Tunes stuff, like Barber of Seville, Barber of Seville and all that kind of thing. Like, I, 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 was, I became aware of that stuff because of Looney Tunes, which is funny. You'd be amazed how many American kids – first found out about classical music and opera from the Looney Tunes. And so we had that in mind, you know, when we set out to make Hey Arnold, we were like, Hey, we're going to quote Miles Davis and, and, and we're going to, we can't do Vince Guaraldi. We can't just do piano uh, and uh, bass and drums trio. That's too much. Like that would be ripping off Charlie Brown. What can we do? You know? And so we were like, well, you know, Jim, Jim probably talked about this. We were listening to acid jazz that was that was playing on the local KCRW here in LA, and which was, you know, traditional jazz instruments played over uh, hip hop manufactured hip hop beats, and uh, and I said a muted trumpet, man, it's got to have a my, we should have a Miles Davis muted trumpet, and sax, and so we did, and I thought, well, you know, kids kids might hear this first before they ever hear uh, Miles Davis, but. Someday they'll like Miles Davis when they hear it because they got introduced to the the, the vocabulary of, of jazz and hip hop. That's true. It's like very dipping the toe. And the music is such a good tool to set the tone of the show with. And it really they really complement each other very well. Um, you know, there's motifs playing to the screen of like what's going on within the episode that was something that always really impressed me it's something you don't think about like when i was a kid i didn't think about how that thing was happening but like uh um the episode where abner gets lost and it's like the music is adding to that scene in a way that you don't really think about when it's happening when i look back i'm like wow like all these things came together and made me feel something and that's that's the thing that always sticks out to me and, and stays with you for a long time, you know? It's great, too, because kids are a great audience. They're, they don't, um, they're not analyzing. No one's sitting there, no nine-year-old is sitting there breaking it down and going, well, I see, you know, he's playing, you know, the, the music of, is going along with the picture like so. They're just watching it, and, they, and they'll think about that later. Right, yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. Like, until years later, I didn't even think about I just had an aha moment with talking with a friend of mine that I was like, oh, I should maybe try to talk to the person that made the music for Hey Arnold. Like, I didn't realize how much that had stuck out to me and that I remembered it, you know, and it's it's so tied to like a time in your life when you, you hear something and you're like, oh, I remember when I first heard that. And so that's always something that really stuck out to me, too. Another thing I would really like to talk to you about is just, you know, in general of like 
expectations and and things that ended up happening as far as like you know we see the finished product of a show coming out but what was something maybe you learned about you know putting the show together first getting it out that maybe you were like oh i didn't even realize that this has happened or something maybe we wouldn't have known about well yeah that's a good question because it's it's uh starting up a show especially the first year and the first season was so intense because I had a crew of about 50 people and that doesn't mean that's only the people that were in, uh, in Burbank where we were making it for Nickelodeon. Then we shipped it overseas and another hundred people or so were hand making the, the cells, the backgrounds and shooting it on film. Then it would come back to us and we'd put it through post here. And at that point I'd, I'd uh, get involved with Jim and we'd score the thing once we had cut our picture to 11 minutes sharp. But so you think about, that's a that's a big order, you know. That they, they started. We did twenty half hours a year for five years in a row. So we made those hundred half hours, uh, boom, 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 for five years. And I luckily I didn't know better than to you know be freaked out by how much work that was going to be. I was really into it, of course. I really was happy to have my shot, right, and to have my opportunity to make my own show. And I would say I was pretty prepared for that because I've been animating. Let's see, I got the show got picked up in, in the beginning of 95. I've been animating for uh, 13 years by then. First, first as a clay animator for Will in Portland and wanting very much to direct and tell my own stories. Then came down to here to LA to do Pee Wee at the end of the 80s and um, uh, still directing, but you know, not really expressing my own voice. And and uh, got to do Rugrats, you know, the first season of that. And uh, working as a story editor. So I wrote a lot of those first season episodes with Paul Germain and, and uh, directed the last one. So I got my hands in storyboard by then and, and, uh, and directing. But, it, you know, the, the goal for me, and I would imagine the goal for a lot of animators was, I want to do my own character. I want to have a character that is sort of my avatar. And Arnold was, you know, I created Arnold to, to be what it, I want this to express what I felt like as a kid. And he could be me, even though I'm, you know, I have very little to do with Arnold. You know, I'm not, he, he's quite different for me. But but the, you know, the, using him as my avatar, you know, so I could express myself through him. Uh, so I had that. And that gave me kind of the high ground with all my 50 people. You know, I hired a big crew. I had board artists and directors and writers and we were all like jamming making these episodes as fast as we could we had to make 20 half hours in a year you know a year and change we would deliver that first season and uh so we were working really fast and you can imagine the arguments and the you know it was a brawl man and the, the more talented the people there were really passionate talented people working for me I could go on and on. Tuck Tucker, for example, was a friend of mine who I hired. He helped me board the and animate the pilot. And then, then I had him as kind of my star director. And he and I, luckily, we got along great. We didn't fight, but it was intense because Tuck wanted it to be a certain way. My writers really wanted it to be a certain way. And and each director that that weighed in. So trying trying to kind of lead that thing. I just tried to take that kind of high ground of being Arnold, you know, I would be, I would be like, well, we got to kind of really make sure it comes from Arnold's point of view, all these things that are happening. 
you know, even though it's a bunch of different stories are kind of wildly different. And, uh, you know, based on our experiences as kids and all the writers, you know, kind of wanting to pitch in stories that sort of things that happened to them vaguely when they were a kid too. And yet I had to kind of always bring it all through Arnold's point of view. And I was in control of that. So I, I, uh, that's what I did. It was just like hanging on, trying to be, trying to survive all the, you know, different opinions of all these different people and not let it change too much from my original vision about it was going to be an emotional show about what it was like to be a kid kind of based on my feelings about it. And, and I, I gave a lot of rope to them. You know, I like, there was a lot of, it was, people had a lot of slack. A lot of people were able to express themselves really well. The background artists who, who helped me create Arnold city, you know, they put a lot of themselves in that thing. And the same with the writers, you know, Joe and Steve and I were the original three writers, Joe and Saul Behar and Steve Vixton and I, um, we were putting a lot of our heart and soul into these stories. Uh, and, and I, you know, you got to give everybody credit for that. I, and all I did was kind of manage it. And I felt like, and now of course I, I wrote as hard as I could. I tried to contribute as much as I could too. you know, writing, writing those stories. Um, but it, the, the role of a show creator and a showrunner, at least for me, was to be put yourself right in the middle of all of it and, and be a consensus getter. You know, I could, and as a middle kid, I was the third of four kids. I think I had a good ability always to kind of be a mediator and, and kind of get consensus from the people in my family. And so that uh, I just applied that to the show. I, I was always trying to convince everyone, like, here's what we want to do. And you talked about what was the one you talked about the the music from um, when, when Abner, Abner got lost. Yeah, okay, Abner come home. That's a super emotional story. A, a kid loses his pet, and he he hits bottom. Man, Arnold feels really bad. And those were my favorite stories. The first ones that came back, field trip. You know, when he he sees Lockjaw and he goes home, he's all bummed and he lays on his couch and looks up the, through the skylight and can he's kind of hallucinating. He's seeing a, a Lockjaw everywhere. And, you know, Lang puts the Lang puts the final uh, touch on that thing with his score. And, yeah, that's some heavy shit. You're feeling bad. And I, I looked at that and I'm like, man, no one else is doing the other Nicktoons aren't trying to go to this place. So this will be my place. I'll I'll be the guy who makes the show about uh, uh, real kids kind of and and the real emotions they feel. And that'll be our uh, superpower. And so I felt like my job was to just convince everybody, like, come on, this is what we're doing. And I really would say once we got the shows finished, we'd get them back and we would play them for the whole crew. We'd have, a, you know, everyone would gather around in a kind of a living room space. We had a big TV and I'd sit everybody down and watch the show. And I go, see, let's do this. Let's do. I love the way you feel at the end of the baseball. Let's do this. You know, it, it is. It's really it's really emotional when Abner, you know when Abner gets lost, you know, let's, let's go to these places. Yeah. It sounds like you guys really, the, the important thing that I've taught, I, you know, I've gotten to talk to a couple people that have created shows. The thing that they say is most important. A lot of the times is just, you got to find what your thing is and then own that. And that sounds like textbook, what you guys did. It's like, here's what we're good at putting all these elements together. And this is the thing that we can, 
create and this can be ours. This is the thing that's different than what everybody else is putting out is what it sounds like. And it, it, you, it was great that the, all these different artists, all these men and women that, that helped me make it, it's great that they felt that way as well. I can't imagine they felt quite as, as, as intensely as I did. You know, they didn't, but I still gave all of them. I really did. I tried to give all of them a sense of ownership of what we were doing because you know, if you're, if you're happy doing it and you're proud of it, you're going to do a better job. So that I, you know, I, I did, I tried to, you know, let, I tried to let everybody else put their childhood in it too. Yeah. It sounds like you're like being very much like the John Stockton, just in getting in there trying to distribute out like, okay, take, let me take this in <laughs> that, that you, the, you've got good bones here to what this is, but what about, what about doing it this way? Kind of what you're saying about, being a mediator, I'm sure that just takes a lot, you know, man, you're managing a lot of egos. So like putting together a show is so many different pieces coming together. And so I, I do feel like that would be st- such a huge responsibility. Like uh, it'd be tough to manage, honestly. So I, I mean, shout out to you for doing that. Like that is tough. I mean, it has to be. Yeah, it was wild. It was hair raising. <laughs> now you talked about some of the things, um, you know, like, like this is heavy shit. Like this is real. Um, I'm sure you get you talk about this episode a lot, but the episode with Mr. Wynn and his daughter that is like one of the most iconic episodes of any show from whenever I was growing up. I don't. I I still think about that episode like all the time about like the relatability of it. I guess. Um, so I, you know, if you could just talk a little bit about how that story came together. That's great. I, yeah, I'm happy to. And here, you know, it's almost the holidays, so time to get in that mood again. Right. <laughs> and yeah, it'll be when the holidays come, it'll be 25 years. Wow. Since that show played. And um, uh, we knew we were on to something. I'll tell you that. There we were. We were 20 stories in. It was the last of that first season order. That was episode 20. And it was our first half hour. Normally we did all, all the rest of them had been two 11s. And so this was a 22 and we knew it was special and uh, it, it, it worked out really well for it to be the last thing we did. I'm sure we had that in mind. We were like, okay, we'll make one special. What'll it be? Let's do a Christmas special. Those are always, a, that's golden. That's like, you know, Charlie Brown Christmas. And, and we, and we said, uh, okay, we'll do it last. And it really worked out because I know that, that since it was a 22, we had, I think we had every everybody contributed to it, like all the board artists and the, and the directors. I'd had uh, Jamie Mitchell, who was our supervising director, gets credit for directing it. But like Tuck worked on it, Kelly James, all the artists that normally would be making their own episodes. They were all in on that. Derek Dryman and, and uh, Rob Porter, as our, I can remember that they did sections, too. So we had a big crew of artists working on it, kind of the best of our crew. We had all the background layout people and, and painters all painting. So they were all in the in they were all in it. They all had a big investment in it. And then I gotta say, you know, Steve Vixton, my one of my writers, uh, pitched that idea of the Secret Santa, which we were like, oh, that'll be great. You know, a Secret Santa, uh, it's a chance to hang out in the boarding house and kind of see grandma and grandpa and she can get the holiday wrong and and uh, uh, <laughs> grandpa can be kind of the MC who's who's organizing everybody and giving them their jobs. And, and uh, uh, it, it, that was all fine. But Steve had that idea. What if it's about Mr. Wynn and, and Arnold uh, 
his job, he, he gets Mr. Wynn's name for the secret Santa. And then he's got to, uh, he does realizes he doesn't really know Mr. Wynn. He's got to like sit down and ask him what he likes. So we can think of a present for him. And what if this present is he had to give up his daughter in Saigon when it fell? Cause then, you know, what do we know about Vietnam? We know that the U S lost the Vietnam war and, and at the fall of Saigon, um, Many people were refugees and got helicoptered off the roof of the embassy. And what if that was Mr. Wynn's story? That'd be great. You know, and then, you know, that's kind of wild, man, that he had to give up his daughter. That's some heavy shit. So we were, you know, when Steve suggested it, I was like, oh, boy, um, that would be amazing. Because it would be. It would be different from any other Christmas show. But we went, uh, boy, we're going to have to, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of this. I'm going to have to be the mediator and kind of convince the, the crew and I'm going to have to convince the network because the network was like, what? And and most importantly, it had to be OK with Balan uh, Coleman, who plays Mr. Wynn. And also Hip Tai Lee, we hired to come in and play Mai. Those, so we had these two Vietnamese Americans and I, we, I just felt like we really had to do it right. So I said, Balan, first thing, you know, because I saw him all the time. We were recording really regularly and I'd see all my actors every Thursday. Uh, and I, I, you know, he wasn't in every show, but you know, the next time he came in, I'm like, Bowen, we want to, we want to feature you in the Christmas show. And he was thrilled. He's like, great. I, I'm going to, I'm going to get featured in an episode. And I said, here's the deal. You know, we want to tell it that it's a, like a tragic story about how he tells Arnold that he had to give up his daughter. And when they helicoptered the refugees off the roof and, uh, and he's been trying to find her ever since. And Bowen said, you know, I said, it, and we were thinking setting it in the, you know, the rooftop of the American embassy when the helicopters were taking people off. And he's like, you know what? I was there. What? So, so I was like, what? Yeah, you were there. He's like, yeah, man, I got helicoptered off the roof. That's insane. That was insane. And I, I went, well, okay, we really have to do this. I mean, now, now Bowen here can tell a unique Vietnamese American story, you know, and we can, we can tell it in a cartoon, which is, Cartoons are great because they're they're not the same as live action. You can you can tell a, a much more kind of a tall tale with a cartoon. So that's all we knew, and we had to kind of I had to really play the 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 producer on that one and make sure it was cool with Bowen. Get that recording from him, which was a big deal because Bowen, uh, you know, he has a very heavy uh, Vietnamese accent, and it's often hard to even tell what he's saying and. When I would write for Bowen, I would always have him try it. And if he couldn't pronounce it in a way that I could understand, I'd say uh, I'd rewrite it and keep keep rewriting it till I could get something. And out of that, we got a lot of really cool, funny stuff. And he's he's a real, you know, he's an intense guy. And, and Mr. Wynn was an intense character. I really liked him. And uh, so he was on board. He did a wonderful job. The recording of him telling that story and the it's so beautiful, man, like hushed kind of tones. He, takes you to this, takes you to this far away, long ago place. And, you know, when it, you come back out again and Arnold's like, what, what happened? Did, did you, you know, where's, where'd she go? And he's like, I don't know. I've been looking for her ever since. And Arnold's like, what? That's like, you know, boom, man, that's a gut punch. He's feeling terrible again, you know, which was a place that we, we just liked to take Arnold in, in especially in the early days. A, a classic Arnold episode was, he has really strong feelings about something, something that he's going to try to fix and he'll have, you know, mixed results. This one 
then, you know, pulling Helga in as the kind of angel who uh, overhears what's going on and wants to give Arnold the ultimate present. And so her sacrifice of those boots so that um, he, she can get Mr. Bailey to stay up all night and help her find uh, my win. And all that happens, you know, off camera. You only see her convince uh, Bailey and then you don't see them being up all night and her apparently going and finding my win and going, Hey, I, I got to take you to you. You, I want you, you know, your dad's looking for you. I'm going to help you find your dad. Imagine that scene, man, on Christmas morning. That's crazy. And so it's a, it's a crazy story. And uh, you know, lucky us, you know, we got to make it. And I would say we were, must've been really feeling our oats, man. By the end of season one, we must've been like, okay, you know, we know we can do it. And we know that Nickelodeon really does like the finished episodes. It was working for them. Kids were liking it. and They were getting good ratings. And, and so it was considered a success, right? That's super important. If it had been kind of not working and we were like, hey, we want to do this Vietnam Christmas, they would have been like, you know, no. But, you know, we were kind of on right. fire, man. I, right. I felt like when I think about it now, how good it felt to make that. And when we watched it, knowing it was going to make people cry and be really intense. And, and then we did, we, we first screened it at uh, our Christmas party. We, we just, it was hot off the, I had just finished, you know, making the dubs and we just finished delivering the episode. And I took the tape to a Christmas party that we showed it in the bar of the, the club where the party was And this is on sunset strip in Hollywood and, and a really kind of swanky, crazy club on Sunset Strip. And uh, uh, the bartenders who were, you know, you can imagine pretty tough characters in their kind of mid-20s, kind of seen everything. Man, they when, when we played the episode, they all stopped serving drinks and just stood there with their arms around each other watching. And then at the end, they just were like crying and hugging. And so, wow. <laughs> so I was like, man, this works like nuts. This is going to kids are going to love this. And so will uh, adults and really, cause it's different, man. It's, 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 it's really well made. I, I, I'm very proud of that one. Cause everybody, like I said, we had the whole crew super invested in it and everybody worked kind of extra hard. I know, I know I did. I, it was Steve's script, but I got in there and was working on the each draft of it to make it be right. And we working with the artists to, pick exactly what shots we were going to try to show and um you know you still you still got to finish it in 22 minutes you've got this big story and um you've only got 22 minutes and that's hard and some of the hardest things about making the episodes come out the way i wanted was um time you know 11 on the dot or 22 on the dot and never with no exception so you you found yourself going okay i'm gonna have to kill this baby sacrifice this scene and in, in exchange for having more time to do show this or and that's just part of the fun you know that part of the part of the fun of it's it's like it's filmmaking you know you're you're sitting with your editor and you're you're making choices and the choices make a huge difference sound work and the the music are just two examples of things that are, you know first you write it and record it and get the actors performance and then everybody draws the storyboard and you get that back as an animatic and you're kind of seeing what the shape of it is you still got a long way to go you know you're gonna you're gonna now put music and sound on it 
and and get it just the just the right length and show just enough of each thing. I mean, the ones that you know, I mean, we made plenty of ones that I thought didn't come out so hot, but it's not like they were perfect. But <laughs> but but the one when it really worked, like that Christmas show, I'm like, oh my god, come on, you know, let's give it up for this really good episode. And and it's because we cared so much, we were really into it. Yeah, man. I mean, it's just it's so relatable. It's a human experience, and it's so wild that you know people always talk about how car- cartoons are for kids but i feel like that's like an episode of a cartoon where it's like anybody can see that and relate to that right and it's it's interesting that you say that too because it's sort of you know like most people didn't have to go through what mr Wynn went through and most people don't live like arnold does and yet you're right there's something that they get about it it's just that the basic kind of it's it's getting it down to really basic kind of yearning. So, uh, you know, uh, a, a dad loses his daughter and is looking for her and trying to get her back, you know, Helga and her, her kind of ridiculous unrequited love for Arnold. And, you know, she's got to give him a present and not, you know, you notice she doesn't, I don't know if Arnold ever found out, you know, it was like, she was really like a secret Christmas angel in that story. And we liked it that way. That's, that's the most kind of emotionally charged it can get. Yeah, and any kid who loves somebody and wishes they could, uh, you know, do something magical for them would watch that and go, oh, man, you know, wow, Helga really pulled that off. <laughs> right. Behind the scenes, even. That's really cool. Running a show, I imagine, afterwards is probably what a filmmaker feels like when he's watching another film is there is there cartoons that you've seen since you put out hey arnold and your subsequent work that stuck out to you that you're like wow they really nailed that i'm sure you look at it through a completely different lens but you know there's been so much come out in the last few years i mean what are some of the stuff that stuck out to you like i love I, i love when something is just like really smart and funny like uh, like Rick and Morty seems just like endlessly smart and funny. And, and uh, the, when I, when I look at, at the, the, there's my f- favorite feature films are usually like uh, they're, they're usually the weirder ones. Like of, of all the features that have come out animated features, I think about things like uh, triplets of Belleville or even, even like the red turtle, you know, uh, uh, these are films that most people probably haven't seen, but they're, uh, they're just great examples of like, here's storytelling this. We're going, we're going somewhere that you do not under, you know, you're going to not know where we're going or why and not predictable because the, the American features are much more predictable in the sense that they got to appeal to kind of everybody. And, and, you know, at the end of a kind of late in act two, the character, the, the two main characters are going to hit bottom and, probably have to separate and get back together. You know, there's a lot of the kind of machinery of storytelling that's just going to be there. And, and so I love a weird film where you really have no idea what's going to happen next. Same thing applies to Miyazaki. I mean, if I'm, if I'm really talking about where I'm happiest, it's probably watching a a Miyazaki feature because same thing. He's not telling stories in a traditional way. He's telling stories that seem to come from his unconscious. And, and, and he, I, I, I've seen documentaries of how Miyazaki does his work. And uh, that guy, he, shit, man, he starts, he starts production and the, because the producer set it up and goes, yeah, all 60 of these artists are going to start painting uh, backgrounds next week. 
where's our story? And I'm like, when I watched it, I'm like, what the hell? Why didn't you figure this out, Miyazaki? Why didn't you, why didn't you write up all your outline and, <laughs> and have a script done before you, you start them drawing? But that's because that's, he's not that way. He, he literally wants to almost, it's almost like a kind of torture where he wants to uh, take himself right to the edge and, and then pull out of his unconscious, this crazy stuff. So I just appreciate that stuff. I've seen, I've seen, uh, a lot of really by the book animation and most of it has to make so much sense. And I've done tons of preschool where there's no, we're not improvising really. We're, we're, we're writing scripts that have a, a, a kind of a lesson, kind of a message. We're trying to get, get some science across. That's much different from uh, my, my favorite, my heroes, my favorite filmmakers and their, their weird storytelling. And I just appreciate that. It's, I like it because it's different. It's not like live action at all. It's kind of taps into uh, really deep, unconscious, dreamlike stuff that, that it's, you know, kind of what I love anyway. And Yeah, you know, I, I agree, man. Of, That's true. Yeah, there's a lot of great animation uh, being made right now. Much of it probably kind of under the radar. And uh, I'm not surprised. I think, I think it's very difficult to, like a deal like the Ghibli Studios, the Miyazaki and his, his partners, most people don't have that. You know, when I think about it, like I'll come out of a Miyazaki movie and I'll go, damn, man, he didn't have to pitch this to anybody, <laughs> you know? And I, you know, that's the opposite for us. When we're making network TV, we got to pitch it and they got to like it or you're not going to make it. So yeah, we were lucky in the early Arnold days because it was, uh, they were still letting us, they were letting us do crazy shit. If, if you think of the Christmas stories, what happens in that story we got a lot of slack. We got the network really let us experiment. Yeah. That's, and that's just like, you know, getting out of the people's way of, like you said, you guys were on right then. So just the presence to be like, let's get out of their way. Let them do their thing. Obviously they're just like in their routine and like, yeah, we were in the groove. You're absolutely right. And that, that persisted too. We, I felt like we stayed in that groove uh, at least through season three which was two more years of that kind of creativity and uh, and kind of relative freedom. And so it was a long stretch for us all to be together and and kind of knowing we were in that group. It was a good feeling. Yeah, Ghibli is like a very good example of like just them getting the freedom and having the resources to produce Another small shop that I've been impressed with in the last few years is uh, Cartoon Saloon from Ireland. They did uh, Wolf Walkers, Song of the Sea. They that they I'm very impressed. Those are really creative and gorgeous films. Obviously, you're like a big fan of music too. You know, you had such a hand in working with Jim with some of the uh, the score and everything. Can you talk a little bit about music in your household growing up? S- stuff that you know just have always has always like resonated with you or that you've always you know gone back to yeah that's a good question I'm, i feel like my, the, my timing for uh, growing up i grew you know the 60s when i grew up the 60s to me as a kid in grade school were about the beatles and the moon the space race to the moon with russia we were you know we were racing against russia to get the first man on the moon all the way through the 60s and the beatles were churning out their hits all through the 60s and I, I just, those were the things that were the main themes of my childhood. And I, I, 
I I think that did have a really big influence on me. The kind of you know rock and roll and you know guitar, you know get grow up, learn how to play the guitar and and, and make rock and roll was just one of the things I just wanted to do. And and it was it was kind of cool too because it was it was just kind of my my something I loved and kind of a hobby and I, and I could since I knew I was an artist I I was probably gonna have a career in art so the music was just sort of a fun hobby for me and so I felt no pressure I just learned the guitar as I grew up you know as a teenager I probably started playing and and uh, all through my twenties and thirties and forties and fifties and so on just I. As I got older and had more money, I got better guitars, <laughs> and and uh, and, uh, uh, and and it was really lucky making animation because, and that's what really jumped out of me when I was a, an art student in school, and when I decided to bail on on being a painter or a sculptor and doing fine art, you know, and showing in galleries, I I, I bailed on that because I I found that to be really serious, and I I loved um, indie animation that I was seeing that at, at our, our art school, we had a theater and we could see all the films for free. And I, I remember every year another tournée of animation would come through and I'd see those little indie projects and go, listen, man, they've got really experimental tracks. They've got cool music. They're usually very kind of weird or funny or both. And I thought, this is really cool. There's a kind of narrative storytelling going on here, but not in the traditional sense at all. And the same with the soundtracks. And I, I thought this is cool. I can I can tr- take my love of music and I can put it into my first little films. And so making the tracks and, and making the music was always part of it. And it it was really it was super fun. It was kind of stealth for me because I was people were thinking of me as an animator, an artist, maker of the film. They weren't thinking of me as the person making the music. But I always had a hand in it because I loved it. And it was such a great collaboration to meet Jim Lang. I, I I had been in L.A. for really the first year I got to L.A. I came down in 88 to do uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse, uh, 87 and 88, I, those those two summers. I was uh, working on the Penny cartoons for Pee Wee's Playhouse. And right after that, the very next job I got was making uh, some kind of World's Fair films for a guy named Bob Rogers in Burbank. And through Bob a friend, yeah, through yeah. a friend, um, I was introduced to Lang. And I was like, man, there's a here's a soul mate, you know, we love the same stuff and he always could make funny music. And, um, and, and I knew he, he, I knew he was a player and loved jazz. And so when uh, we got the chance to make the Arnold pilot, I was like, of course I called him because he was my, just like Tuck Tucker was my go-to artist. Uh, Jim Lang was my go-to composer. And I said, Jim, I think it's an opportunity for us to do, an update of the jazz score of Charlie Brown. Let's do something that's kind of more complex and, 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 you know, make kind of carve our own sound. That's not like, it's not like uh, Charlie Brown. It's not like anything else on, on in cartoons. And so he was a perfect collaborator and, and he really helped me because he pictured me like uh, play for fun, not, not schooled in music at all. Uh, basically a guitar player, you know, and and not a particularly skilled one. And so Jim <laughs> let me track the when we'd write songs, he would let me track the guitar, the simple things, uh, the one called uh, We Got Tomorrow, you know, Old Tomorrow. Uh, those were and the opera songs. Those were songs that I I if they were an original song like uh, like the simple things, 
I would write them myself. And I wrote, Steve Vixton and I stayed up one night in, in the office after everyone had gone home and wrote the simple things. And at about midnight, I, we finished and, and I, I got, I called Jim's studio and left the, left the demo on, on his uh, answering machine. I'm like, Jim, we finished the song. It's called the simple things. One, two. And I, <laughs> I like played it over the phone. And he, he said he came in in the morning and he, he's laughed and laughed. He said, I didn't understand a word of it, but I can tell it's good. Send me the lyrics. I can't even tell what you were saying, but <laughs> so just garbled mess. Yeah. So that was the, that was the kind of, for me, that was early uh, music making and songwriting. And it was because I, I was so lucky, you know, I was the creator of Hey Arnold. So um, we had songs in it and we would put them in now and then, and I would get to write lyrics or sometimes write the tune. And then Jim Lang would, and my, as my collaborator would record me and he, he really helped. He really mentored me in especially recording because he got me to calm down and track it, which is, you know, not easy. And it's something that takes a lot of uh, practice and experience. And, and uh, now I feel I can confidently track uh, something and I don't feel too bad about the result. And I think that's because I had Jim as a collaborator. He, he basically taught me, a lot of what I know about music making. It's always good when you have someone that is really into that thing and knows all about that thing and then can kind of help mentor you in that way. It's always so helpful. And like, it's just like a cool like way to kind of, you know, showcase that collaboration. I think that's really cool. When I, when I think about it, especially now, you know, now, now he's, Jim's living in uh, San Rafael and um, uh, basically working remotely from his studio in his home. And we, I saw him a week ago, but, but normally we don't get to uh, hang out and we're in two parts of the state. And, and so in the, in recent years, like all the score that he did for ready jet go, uh, you know, there's about 65 of those uh, Jim scored all those on his, he had like a laptop and a keyboard and, and a, a kind of a fairly large uh, portable drive. So he could store the giant files and he, he was working in logic, I, I think. And he he was basically working on this stuff on the road, wherever he was. He just had this portable uh, rig that was, you know, a keyboard, a laptop and a drive. And and so, you know, proving that from I, from in your head idea to expressing it into like full, fully realized. He was doing it in a way that seemed almost superhuman. I mean, working really fast usually getting it right the first time and um, a tremendous amount of kind of like discipline to, to bust out all that work over a short period of time. And, you know, it, it's, it's amazing. We're living in amazing times when you think about what we can do digitally now, whether it be drawing animation or music or sound um, we have that we have tools now that are just blow away the tools of the old days. And right. the opportunity for greatness is always there. <laughs> it's just up to us to think of something that's great. But yeah, the tools are great. Yeah, I'd say the tools coupled with the, you know, he's just built different as like a classically trained musician. Those guys are always just insane anyway. Um, well, one thing I do want to ask, I know that other people feel this way about shows like this, you know, that they're important to them and that, you know, they may or may not know your name, but what I want to ask is for someone that 
maybe has a love for drawing or is interested in it, what is just some advice you could give someone that, you know, they're like, I kind of like that. Maybe I could do this, you know? It's a great question. Every, I think I think there are many people who, who look at a, a cartoon that they love and go, how can I do this? I want to do this. You know, how did, or, or that you get like a cool opportunity. You get, a, you get the break of a lifetime to, to have your shot. You know, I got my shot. I'm really lucky about that. I feel kind of extra kind of privileged that that happened to me. And I, I think maybe I was well set up to expect things like that. Like my, the way I was raised, my parents, you know, they thought I could do whatever I wanted and encouraged me and didn't, I didn't have to, it wasn't a big struggle or fight when I was young to, to uh, just go out and try. But I will say that um, I, I would take, when I, I would try to always keep my mind and the door open when the opportunity came to jump through, because you not only have to want it and, and have that desire and the ambition to do it, you also have to, you know, train yourself, try to, you know, out of somewhere, you got to have, have the, 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 the tools and the, the, the ability to do it, but then the opportunity comes, you got to jump. Like the thing that really started all this for me, Will Vinton, you know, when I was in Portland being a clay animator, he gave me the first big break just by hiring me and letting me make, make animated clay stuff for him for uh, most of the eighties. And then I had to go when Pee Wee started, Pee Wee's Playhouse went on TV and I want to say 86. I went down in the summer of 87 to do the penny cartoons. I, I saw what was going on and I was like, I got to get to LA, man. That's just where the shit is happening. I mean, I'm, I'm having fun in Portland. I love, believe me, I love Portland. It's I'm from the Northwest originally. And it's a absolutely lovely town. I had friends there. I, I, I had gotten married there. I was like, I had a lot of reason to stay, but no, you know, Pee Wee's Playhouse was like, man, there's something going on down there. There's a, all those weird kinds of animation that were all in every episode and, and the kind of weirdness, psychedelic strangeness of it. I was like, I, I bet if I went down there, that would start a bunch of stuff. And also it was my first uh, credited as a director because I was a director of the, of the Penny cartoons with other people. Tom Gasick was making them with me at the same time. But, um, you know, I was, I, I was doing it for my career too. I was going, I'm sick of sitting here wishing I could be a director I got to go. And so I think, I think when you see that there's an, a chance, jump through the door, man, don't, don't go, well, ah, maybe I couldn't do it. You know, like I, I had to go, I had to just suck it up and go, I, I, even if I feel like I'm an imposter, I got to go down there and just act like I know what I'm doing. And, and that led to, I, I worked on those Pee Wee cartoons and that led to me being introduced to Clash Key and Chupo. And that was right when Nickelodeon reached out because they were going to start the Nicktoons in 1990. And I got that job as a story editor of Rugrats first season. Again, another terrific break, just as important as Will Vinton giving me the chance to be a clay animator in Portland. Um, now, Klasky and Chupo were letting me be the story editor of this new Nicktoon. And uh, I learned all the rest of it from that. I learned how to write screenplays. I learned how to storyboard and direct in 2D. And that's because I just went like, yeah, I can do it. And I, I think, you know, I would say to anybody who would want to, to uh, have a career, um, go for it, man. You know, like 
go ahead and take that chance. I mean, it really helps to, you know, I read, I did, I, you know, I, I always tell young students like, man, don't forget, you got to read, you got to, you got to, you know, you got to be good. You got to study and, and uh, be good at your, your, your basic uh, education, because that's all going to come into play when you, when you're making a, a, making a cartoon, it's not just drawing. It's also story, which comes from reading and, which comes from, you can watch a bunch of movies, you know, read a bunch of screenplays. You got to teach yourself the stuff and then, and then hope that you get the chance like I got. I mean, I, I know too, that was like a needle in a haystack. The, all, the, the main breaks I got when I tell people about it, they're like, man, <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> and and I, can't, I can't explain except I, de I definitely had a, a huge amount of desire to, to uh, go and, you know, make something. And I think that's still there, man. That's in my DNA. I still wake up, jump out of bed and want to go do stuff. I want to make stuff. And some people don't have that. It's, you know, not in their nature. And, you know, good for them. It takes all kinds of people to make a world. Uh, but but I think that really came in handy for me. Yeah, man. I think, you know, owning it and then betting on yourself is just always important for anybody in anything. So it just, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And it's so hard, you know, the, the imposter thing is big. Because people, for some reason, are like, I don't, I, why would that be me? And it's like, well, why not? Like, why would it not be you? It's got to be somebody. Why not you? It's like a, it's like a sort of a scenario you're running where, like, I don't know, like, the animation police are going to come in the door and go, what are you doing, <laughs> man? You know, you, you don't know what you're doing. I will say it gets better. When I was in my 20s, I had imposter syndrome a lot harder than I do now because now I, I'm duh. I've got a big resume. I've made a bunch of stuff. And so I don't have to pretend I'm a writer anymore. <laughs> I can remember writing episodes of Hey Arnold and other stuff where I was writing and writing and, and I was the only one who'd read it yet. And I was like, man, what if this stinks? What if this is really bad? You know, and I, I kind of push it through and make it. And then uh, it comes out terrible and I'm kind of embarrassed by the result. But luckily, uh, most of the time it came out okay. And, and people, uh, you know, I mean, the thing that was great too about the audience that watched Hey Arnold was they were children and they, uh, in all their innocence and kind of open, open heartedness, they were watching this stuff and just like letting it happen and, and not being all grown up and, and cynical and being like, ah, you know, they, so I was really lucky. I had a bunch of kids watching it taking it directly to heart, you know, they had, a, in their life, they only had a few channels on TV and a few shows that they were watching. And they, and so it made a big impact where if I rolled out, Hey Arnold right now in 2021, you know, maybe it wouldn't reach, it certainly wouldn't reach the same audience. It would be harder to reach an audience that big and that willing to kind of just like embrace it for what it was. So my timing again was really lucky. It's just that intangible thing of like right place, right time. Yeah. Well, dude, I definitely want to ask you, um, you know, just to wrap up, um, you know, what are you working on now, man? Like, what, what do you got going on? Where can people follow you and keep up with everything you're doing? The, uh, thanks for asking, because the, the place to find me is Instagram. I, my, and it's just Craig Bartlett on Instagram. And uh, uh, that's I have found that to be the kind of the least hassle. Um, it, it's sort of easy to post on that. People, it's, you know, kind of completely wide open. Anybody can comment. And so and they do. And so uh, it's a it's a fun way for me to kind of keep that feed going. And for a long time, honestly, I was it was and it still is very kind of Arnold centric, you know, my my Instagram feed, because 
I just know that 90% of my followers, that's what they want to see is kind of Arnold stuff and behind the scenes. There's a tremendous amount of interest in the characters. And that I think is because the audience that was grade school age, now they're in their twenties and thirties and older and they, they remember it fondly and, and they're kind of glad to know that I'm like during the, during the, the pandemic, kind of the heart of the, in 2020, when things were at their worst, I started doing this, this, uh, just, I do these posts that were like letters. Arnold was writing to Helga and Helga was writing back to Arnold and, and like how they wanted to, they, they, they couldn't be together during that time. And, and they wanted to, uh, they, they planned a, an ice cream date at Slauson's. They were going to go have ice cream when, when uh, the city opened back up again. And I just did it like in real time, like, okay, this is where they are right now in 2020. This is Arnold and this is Helga and this is what they're doing. And so, and I just did it for fun. I mean, I, I finished my last big project with Arnold was, uh, you know, 2018, I was done. You know, we delivered the, the uh, jungle movie at Thanksgiving. So, uh, you know, four years ago now. And, um, uh, you know, after that, I was hoping to do more. I said, look, everything's set up, man. Now they're in sixth grade and, and uh, we could, you know, they, Arnold went and found his parents and, and they, they're, they're home now. We could have, all kinds of crazy shit happen. Uh, he confessed to how good he loved her and, and uh, she's still going to be a mess and, and they'll have like a weird, <laughs> you know, kind of on off all kinds of, there's so much stuff that could happen. And the, the, the grown up fans are so into like hookups. They want to see like to Phoebe and Gerald, you know, you know, who, who else in the gang hooks up? They're really into that stuff. And I'm like, look, Nickelodeon, I could, I could just do this forever, but you know, they, they, they decided to bet on uh, Rugrats and, and uh, SpongeBob spinoffs. And they, they really haven't had, I've done some, I've done some kind of consumer products for them and made some art for them and stuff, but you know, they, they don't, they, you know, the phone isn't ringing going, Hey, let's do, let's do more. So I just have stayed busy trying to, I'm always trying to make something new. I've got a project that I'm developing with Cartoon Network now that I can't really talk about because it's early, but it's, it's another one of my favorite ideas that I've wanted to do. And uh, I, I'm I, the people that are over there are receptive to this idea. It looks like we're going to go ahead with it. And uh, so that's all I need to know. I like to like to stay busy. I like to uh, all the all the projects that I've started. I, I'd, I'd love to do more of it. But when you know, it's, it's like stuff comes and goes. And when things get quiet on one thing, hopefully another thing takes off. And so, yeah, stay, staying in it, always trying to create something new, um, uh, doing all the same stuff I've always done. I'm more into kind of personally drawing in my sketchbook than I was at the, somehow the pandemic, I just drew like crazy. And, and so I, I find I'm trying to kind of keep it real and kind of all my, you know, I work, I work on a Cintiq and Photoshop, just like everybody else, you know, we, we make our animation digitally and we, we, we do our production digitally, but I, I usually start from my sketchbook. And so there's, you know, it's kind of small and I, I like, I like starting that way, scanning it, getting it into Photoshop and at, you know, kind of enhancing, adding color and stuff. And that, so that seems like a really real way for me to, uh, you know, tap my unconscious and find what I love the most and just try to turn it into a show. So nothing's changed. <laughs> <laughs> Tools change, 
but uh, the uh, the desire to make stories never goes away. I hope it never does. Right, man. That just stays on, and it's just you know, seems like it's you at your core. You just want to create. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, it makes me happy. Well, Craig, again, man, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for tuning in for this interview with Craig Bartlett. Um, I was really excited. Again, a million thanks to Jim Lang for hooking it up. Uh, but yeah, as always, guys, follow us on social media. That's Tunes Tunes Podcast, T-U-N-E-S slash T-O-O-N-S. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your podcasts. Bye-bye.